talk tonight is about the heart of gratefulness. I once read that Carl Jung said that a group of people can never conquer another group of people because the spirits of the people who conquered, who apparently conquered, enter the children of the people who have been conquered when they are born. I'll repeat it. (laughs) Carl Jung once said that a group of people could never really conquer another group of people because the ancestors or the spirits of the people who um, had been conquered, who were taken over, uh, would enter the spirit of the children of the people who took over. So that, that, that there was a you know, carryover of the people's spirits, no matter whether they've been taken over or not. When I was a very young um, child, I don't remember how old I was, but I, it was before I could speak, I have a memory of being held by my father. I was looking this way, he was holding me like this, so he was looking that way, I was looking the opposite way. There was a huge fire in the town next to the town where I grew up. It was a big old mansion, it was called the Mansion Inn. The whole thing burnt to the ground. For some reason, I don't know why, my father took me, a very small (laughs) infant, to see this. Maybe he just wanted to go and had to bring me with him. Uh, and I just remember screaming my brains out, just, you know, crying and crying and crying. And I remember my father was trying to comfort me, and he was just holding me up to look at the fire and saying, it's just fire, it's just fire. And I knew it wasn't the fire that was bothering me. You know, I could see that the fire was okay and I felt safe. But there was something about the place. There was something about, you know, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't speak, but there was something that really upset me, and I knew it wasn't the fire. When I was in about fifth grade, about 11 years old, and this place that had burnt to the ground just had gone to, um, you know, field and then woods. Not, not very old, just scrub brush there was a development that was going to be put in, so the place was bulldozed. And when it was bulldozed, they found out it had been an ancient Indian burial ground. I knew when I found that out that that's what had upset me. You know, there was a feeling about the place and things that I was seeing and feeling um, that were so powerful. It was extraordinary. It really was helpful for me to get that feedback that it had been um, an old burial ground that, as you probably most of you know, uh, was considered a place where people weren't supposed to be. I'm um, very, very grateful. I think it's one of the things I'm the most grateful for, for where I grew up. I grew up on Lake Katituit, on a beautiful lake in the woods, and there were there was a path around the lake that I always felt had been made um, by Native Americans. I used to wander in the fields. The family I lived in was pretty intensely filled with suffering, and this time that I spent in nature, which was most of my time, uh, was incredibly nourishing and healing. In fact, I feel like I was raised and nourished a lot by... um, uh, It's hard for me to put into words, but devas and spirits outside, it was... um, I still feel this gratitude for these times I spent outside. A lot of the gratitude I have is actually to the people 
who lived here, um, the Native Americans. And I felt, I just felt their presence so strongly when I was a child and, and growing up and still do, you know, even when I walk around here. There's a heritage that um, we've received that mostly we haven't acknowledged or appreciated as a culture. I'm beginning the talk with this because today is a um, holiday that is a very important holiday for our culture, and it actually came from the Native Americans. You know, there was an Iroquois prayer of thanksgiving, uh, and the whole um, way that we celebrate it was given to us by the Native Americans. It's very specific to this part of the world. This is part of a um, Iroquois prayer of thanksgiving. And in it, um, you can see that all creation is embraced by this prayer. I just took parts of it. We return thanks to our mother, the earth, which sustains us, to the wind, which moving the air has banished diseases, to our grandfather, Haino, that he has protected his grandchildren and has given to us rain, to the sun, that he has looked upon the earth with a beneficent eye. We have so much to learn from the wisdom of the Native American spiritual traditions, at least um, what is left, which hasn't been lost. Although so much was destroyed, there's a vast and deep and profound spiritual heritage, which is truly um, from this part of the world, based in the feeling of the land and all that we share this land with. Whenever I um, get in touch with what this heritage is, for me, the most important part of this heritage from Native Americans is this incredible development of valuing, of really valuing gratitude. It's just the top of the list. In, in anything I've read or anything I've experienced, it's, um, this, this is the most important thing in this spiritual tradition. And that's why I think it's so important on a day like Thanksgiving to realize that this is an inheritance uh, that hopefully we'll learn to appreciate and be grateful for more and more as the years go by. This gratitude in these um, Native American traditions, and there are over 300 tribes left in this country, um, celebrate an understanding of the um, interdependence of all of life. The understanding is that we aren't separate eyes. This is very similar to the teaching that we are learning in this tradition, that we're utterly connected and dependent upon all life, that we actually share everything. This, you know, incredible vulnerability Uh, that all beings who take birth here share, uh, it's not something light. It's quite powerful when we get in touch with it, that we are totally dependent from when we're born on human affection. Babies die if they don't get human affection, that we're totally dependent on eating other beings, you know, to live. It might not be that 
it's directly a being that you see is breathing, but if you look very closely at even the broccoli that you pick, there's millions of beings living in the broccoli. It's like you can't get away from the fact that we are all eating each other. And life has this tremendous um, sharing. It's a give and take. There's this universal reciprocity. And it's important to see that even if you take one breath, you know, that the air we're breathing, it's not just ours. It's not uh, something separate from us. We're connected. The water, the earth, air, fire, and water, the wonderful thing about doing Vipassana is that we keep connecting with that. Oh, hardness, softness, warmth, coolness. You know, it takes maybe a million times of seeing it before we have an insight about it. But that's what we're doing. We're seeing that there is no separate I here, that there is this interconnection. Titnat Han calls it interbeing. So gratitude includes not only gratefulness to other human beings, but to all beings, seen and unseen, that we're dependent on for our health and our well-being. We live in this tremendous community, or sangha, of beings that we're sharing life with. And it's very precious. There's a... um, joyous humility and a simplicity that comes from being aware of this interbeing or interconnectedness. One of the things that in native um, tribes that's said before ceremony or after are, is, is the phrase, all my relatives or all my relations. Yeah, this is, it's just a basic, you know, fact of understanding that we're all family, that we share this home, the earth, uh, and that we're all one family, including, you know, cockroaches, chipmunks, chickadees. What would your life here be like without the chickadees, or the chipmunks, or the cockroaches? The more we can receive the blessing of this miracle, of this sharing, the more that we can live in thankfulness. (coughs) And this is the heart of gratefulness. I find that um, one of the most important signs of spiritual maturity is when I see a person have more and more moments of genuine gratitude. That's usually how I measure (laughs) how a person is doing along the path. One of the reasons that I particularly love to be on a retreat is that I experience these moments of gratefulness. And they, they feel wonderful. You know, it's, it's just the most amazing feeling to feel this awe and gratitude for life. It, it really means that we understand in that moment. It's not something that you can talk yourself into being grateful. I don't recommend that at all. You know, complain as much as you want. Uh, but there is the uh, sense that when we do understand this this interconnection, this connectedness. This is when we feel the heart totally open and totally touched. And this brings happiness. Living with thankfulness brings joy. What is it that prevents us from feeling this heart of gratefulness? Conceit implies a lack of appreciation. 
conceit means that we feel like a separate I. It feels disconnected. And it's this feeling of being disconnected that's so painful. I think that Steve Armstrong and Sharon mentioned a bit about conceit, so I just wanted to kind of um, mention it because it's, um, you know, conceit and gratitude are very, uh, they are very connected. The Buddha gave three categories to the ten armies of Mara for conceit. No, no other category got three. <laughs> there usually one each, but to get three means that he considered them to be a, that conceit is a great disease of the mind. Uh, Mara is basically the killer of life or the killer of existence. So conceit implies this incredible um, darkness of the mind. This, this lack of understanding. The eighth army of Mara is the feeling of worthlessness. It's um, any time you have any feeling of self-condemnation or putting yourself down. The ninth army of Mara, um, which I'll probably try to talk about in another talk, is the desire for gain or reverence or fame. And the tenth army of Mara is very related to the eighth in that it's the feeling of self-importance. You know, the eighth is um, a feeling of worthlessness, the tenth of self-importance, or a feeling of needing to put other beings down. Often we think of conceit as self-importance, so it's important to see that... um, that this implies conceit implies any kind of separate self-reference, you know, I, me, or mine. The root of these separate self-references are the belief that the body is mine, the belief that thoughts are mine, or feelings are mine, or emotions are mine. The Buddha said that conceit should be regarded as madness. So um, there was, there's a, what's called a threefold conceit. There's um, the feeling of being equal to others, the equality conceit, or inferiority conceit. I am less than others. I'm no good. I'm worse than others. <clears throat> and there's superiority conceit. I am better than others. And as you can see, they're all in reference to a separate self or a separate I. And it's said that only until the point where we overcome these threefold kinds of conceit that we've put an end to our suffering. You know, so this is major. <laughs> Putting a total end to our suffering is major. <laughs> It's also to keep in mind that in our culture, it's, um, conceit is just considered to be that superiority, um, I am better idea. But this includes I am equal, I am worse. And I think that's a much more comprehensive um, understanding of conceit. I won't go into this too much, but it's um, important to understand that we can get identified with anything. <laughs> you know, so it's amazing to see that we can get identified or attached to being no good. But being no good can actually be an identity for us, and it often is for people in our culture. It has very deep roots. Uh, we can also become attached to feeling the best. You know, that need to feel uh, special or that we're doing good, you know. Um, we want to feel the best at the practice. <laughs> you know, if you are honest, you might look and see that you've been identified with both of these a lot in the retreat, you know, in, in our life. 
needing to feel special and feeling like excrement. You know, there's this incredible <laughs> back and forth journey, and one is inflation and one is deflation. One of the ways that we can um, find an inner balance between the polarity between self-condemnation and self-importance or between inflation and deflation is discovering gratitude within ourselves. Being grateful gives us a lot of strength to disidentify with these strong roots the roots of conceit or pride. One of, there are three characteristics of conceit, and the first characteristic is that it destroys gratitude. So this, I am better, <laughs> I am worse, I am equal, that, that is what is destroying gratitude. In gratitude, is when we don't remember how interdependent all of life is, when we don't appreciate all the kindness that has been shown to us in the past, or when we forget the preciousness of the birth process itself. Uh, It's considered to be uh, the best plane of existence to develop understanding the human realm. You know, sometimes when you're in the pits of despair, (laughs) it might be um, a bit (laughs) grating to hear how precious the human birth is. (laughs) But to keep in mind that uh, (laughs) the reason this is said is because, because there's this range of mix of pleasant and unpleasant feelings, that this is what motivates us to search very deeply. That's why it's considered precious. It's not just, (laughs) it's not considered precious to be human for any old reason. It's just that there is this mix of pleasant and unpleasant feelings. And uh, when we can open to that, this is what helps us develop understanding. The Buddha taught that there were two types of rare and precious beings in this world, human beings in this world. The first, the translation is one who is a benefactor. But basically, it's a benefactor is someone who has touched our heart, someone who has done kind things for us, someone who has shown us kindness. The second rare and precious type of human being is someone who is grateful, one who genuinely appreciates the kindness shown to them. In in this category, I'm not just including human beings, you know, it's being grateful for any, any kindness shown to us, any sharing of life. An ungrateful person can't recognize and can't acknowledge the many kindnesses shown to them in their life, and therefore they can't feel grateful. And it's um, important to understand when we can't feel grateful, this is when we feel disconnected, and it's that disconnection that is the pain, that is the suffering. The more separate we feel, the more the heart is like a stone. Self-pity and self-glory are a masquerade for a very deep insecurity. They're a defense. Developing understanding and gratitude um, is an antidote for that insecurity, for that very deep angst. So the first rare and precious type of human being, the benefactor, 
anyone who has shown us kindness, um, you can just reflect on this. You know, it can include parents or friends, family members. It can include teachers, um, dogs, cats, coyotes, chipmunks. I mean, it it doesn't have to fall in the range of human beings, but it's. Um, important to include human beings in your repertoire if you can. (laughs) Um, The need for love, our human need for love, is at the basic core of our survival. However uh, talented or skillful we are as a human being, If we're left alone, we're not going to survive. And this especially is true if we're young, you know, when we're born or young, or if we're old, or if we're sick. We really depend on the support of others. Now just look at how much support we need to do this practice, never mind survive. So one level of gratefulness can just be reflecting on how we've survived. Just basic first, second, third chakra survival. There's a need for um, food. You know, hunger is so painful. Or shelter. Or health. education, affection. You know, these are all things we take for granted in our culture fairly much, but um, most of the world doesn't take these things for granted. Over these years of teaching um, metta, the loving-kindness practice, It's been interesting for us to see uh, how difficult it is for people in our culture to think of benefactors. Often when we introduce the concept, uh, there's a lot of grief that comes up for people because they can't think of benefactors. Uh, And this is a very sad thing. It's tragic. So I thought I'd just sort of expand the idea of elders for a minute uh, and not necessarily include human beings. Um, I mean, as a end, you know, just human beings are part of it, but include all beings. So for me, I include, um, when I was a child, all the feelings of support I felt like I got from unseen beings. They, I consider, benefactors or elders. Um, I saw a poster in a catalog recently, and it um, was a wonderful picture of a wolf howling. It was called The Last Song. And on the bottom of the poster it said, Can we not learn from our elders? And then it had, um, it said wolf, 30 million years old. Whale, 50 million years old. Loon, 160 million years old. Can we not learn from our elders? Even if our parents were more like um, children than adults, um, or maybe they were really like parents, um, whatever has happened for you, if you're alive, uh, it means that somebody did a lot. You know, somebody did a lot for you. Uh, Someone had to have touched your heart enough to keep you going. Somebody changed the diapers, or you wouldn't be here. 
So there, there has to be this basic understanding. I think if you're a parent, you really get how much it takes. Um, sometimes I think the whole way that the human uh, development unfolds is so <laughs> stupid. I mean, we have children, you know, when we're children ourselves. Uh, and when we're at the age to be grandparents, we're just getting it together enough to really help a child. Uh, so, and it's important to keep in mind that this is the situation. Uh, so it, it can help us have some compassion for uh, how it happens. It's just not that easy. If you can think of any people or beings who have shown you kindness, um, you're actually very lucky uh, because you can experience this feeling of gratitude. And it may not be an elder. It might be a dear friend or it might be um, someone much younger or it might be a wound. Whatever it is, it's to know that that being is a gift because we can be touched and feel this gratefulness. My mother died um, when I was about 13 years old. When she died, the woman who lived across the street from me came over and gave me the book Siddhartha by Herman Hess and left. No hug, no words, um, but this book really helped me tremendously. Probably most of you know the story, but it's a story of someone named Siddhartha who searched very deeply for the truth, uh, meets the Buddha, and eventually uh, this river, this stream, becomes his great teacher. He learned to sit by the river and listen to the river and uh, learn from everything that came downstream in his life and develop this deep understanding of life. The book came at just the right time for me, and I feel for her this incredible gratefulness because she was my first spiritual friend. And her gift um, had a lot of meaning because I felt this unbearable loss And the book was her way of trying to give me an understanding of death as our greatest teacher, Uh, that death is a great gift, something to be grateful for, for awakening us. Over the course of our lives, um, for me, this woman and I, um, she has mirrored, when I was young and adolescent, the yearning to understand very deeply life. At least when I was growing up, there weren't that many people who could do that for me, who really mirrored this incredibly intense desire to understand death and life. These people that come into our lives who help us do this are gold. The Buddha taught that the highest blessing we can receive is a spiritual friend, the highest blessing. Sometimes we take this lightly, but the Buddha taught that 100% of the spiritual life is friendship.
I'd like to read something from the prison letters of George Jackson. He spent ten years in prison, seven years in solitary. It's about our human sensitivity to kindness. The significant feature of the desperate man reveals itself when he meets other desperate men directly or vicariously, and he experiences his first kindness. Someone to strain with him, to strain to see him as he strains to see himself. Someone to understand, someone to accept the regard, the love that desperation forces into hiding. Those feelings that find no expression in desperate times store themselves up in great abundance, ripen, strengthen, and strain the walls of their repository to the utmost. Where the kindred spirit touches this wall, it crumbles. No one responds to kindness. No one is more sensitive to it than desperate men. The opposite of feeling connected is this incredible deprivation of kindness, this incredible um, black hole of not feeling connected. On the retreat that I did for two months this past spring, I was really touching some very early childhood um, feelings of of this deprivation or desperation for being, um, for any kind of human affection. And it's really um, hard to put into words how painful it was. It's, uh, It's like an annihilation of the self. It's not a nice feeling. It's a feeling of being totally unlovable or totally unwanted or totally rejected. And it's quite difficult to open to. There were two people that gave me things during that time and I wanted to talk about but I didn't think I'd start losing it. Um, <laughs> there was a friend here, a dear friend. Um, I was doing metta for her as my benefactor and she gave me this handkerchief and it was white uh, and it was from China and there were butterflies embroidered in the corners. <laughs> And when I was crying, I kept crying into these butterflies. (laughs) And it was so incredible because I kept feeling these tears being transformed into um, gratitude. (laughs) And all the suffering um, kept feeling like a gift. It was very uh, powerful. And then Stephen gave me this rock that was from Africa, uh, very shiny and deep red. (laughs) And whenever I was doing walking meditation, I would hold the rock and just feel that feeling of being connected. There were so many moments of my early life that I didn't feel this feeling. Uh, And it really can break the heart Sometimes it feels like it can be a permanent broken heart. But actually it's friendship, really deep friendship that heals that. Got through that one. (laughs) So, I wanted to read a poem by Merwin. I wasn't going to read it at this point, but 
<laughs> might give everybody a break. Um, I wanted to say that the uh, loss of self that's talked about as enlightenment is very powerful and it's positive, but it means you feel totally connected. It's a total letting go, but it's not this void, it's feeling totally connected. An annihilation of the self, this lack of human connection, this lack of affection, is a totally black loss of self. It's dark. Um, And it isn't a joke, it's what people really go crazy from. Um, And this is why I'm trying to stress that friendship, any kind of time that we've been touched by another being, breaks that cycle. And it cuts through the belief that we are unlovable, are unwanted. So friendship is something to me that the Buddha was really (laughs) right about. It's 100% of the spiritual life. This this poem is by um, W.S. Merwin, and it feels to me it's about, um, it's a real dukkha poem. <laughs> and it brings in lots of gratitude. Listen. With the night falling, we are saying thank you. We are stopping on the bridges to bow from the railings. We are running out of the glass rooms with our mouths full of food to look at the sky and say thank you. We are standing by the water looking out in different directions, back from a series of hospitals, back from a mugging. After funerals, we are saying thank you. After the news of the dead, whether or not we knew them, we are saying thank you. Looking up from tables, we are saying thank you. In a culture up to its chin in shame, living in the stench it has chosen, we are saying thank you. Over telephones, we are saying thank you. In doorways and in the backs of cars and in elevators, remembering wars and the police at the back door and the beatings on stairs, we are saying thank you. In the banks that use us, we are saying thank you. With the crooks in office, with the rich and fashionable, unchanged, we go on saying, thank you, thank you. With the animals dying around us, our lost feelings, we are saying, thank you. With the forests falling faster than the minutes of our lives, we are saying, thank you. With the words going out like cells of a brain, With the cities growing over us like the earth, we are saying thank you faster and faster. With nobody listening, we are saying thank you. We are saying thank you and waving, dark though it is. Acceptance of pain takes us much deeper than pleasure does. I find that the people who have suffered the most in their life and actually can open to the dukkha, you know, go the most deep in life. They go, because they have to search so deeply for understanding the meaning of the suffering. And if you look at what's happening on the planet right now, you know, there's a lot of dukkha. If we can open to the pain, if we can accept the pain and learn to work with it, it will bring us very deep and we can say thank you, thank you, dark though it is. It's a kind of gratitude for the Four Noble Truths.
had an experience this spring. Um, my nephew came back from the Persian Gulf from the Marines, and I went to see him the day he uh, arrived home. The worst scenario in my heart was that he would have come home very closed, armored, shut down, or even happy that he had been there. I didn't have any idea what to expect or what would happen. So when I saw him, he was with his girlfriend and I took them out for lunch. I felt like I was with an angel. It was a very uh, transforming experience for me because I didn't expect that uh, an experience of war could transform the heart so dramatically. He was totally shattered. Tears were coming down his eyes the whole time he was talking to me and he was shaking all over. Uh, but he was just filled with appreciation for being out of the war, out of um, the horror of war. He was so appreciative of the food he was receiving for the friendship, for the affection I was giving him. It was a feeling of being with him when he was three years old. And I felt like I had this um, uh, connection with him again that, you know, when people grow up, that you sort of lose that total feeling of no duality. Uh, And I was really shocked that that could happen from an experience of being in the war. I went back to this, um, I went to teach the retreat at Yucca Valley right after I saw him. And I felt that he had gone deeper than a lot of the people that I saw at the retreat. It was quite shocking for me and a really deep teaching that if we can really open to dukkha fully, you know, that it does transform the heart and it it can take place in the most um, strange places. It doesn't necessarily always happen when you're on the cushion. What I was touched by the most was his appreciation of life, his deep desire to get out of the Marines um, was an effect of this, but just this sense of the preciousness of life, having come out of you know, this destruction of life. When we're on a retreat, we don't get to control much that happens. And the only way that I could possibly relate to what he had gone through, because there was no way I can understand what happened for him, but the only way I could possibly stretch my mind to get it would be to feel, you know, what it's like to be on a long retreat. And there's a total letting go of control. You get the added benefit of all these people caring for you and being kind and not being around killing. But there's this sense when you're on a retreat of, you know, surrender. And I was really touched when I came in today from um, being down the hill. And I saw this big note on the board, thank you cooks. It was just such a sense of appreciating, you know, what the cooks did today for us and how, how wonderful that feels. When we're this quiet, you know, you can appreciate the most subtle kindness. You know, you've let yourself be vulnerable. It takes such courage to do that. You know, I love being on retreat. I get time to really appreciate light, the sunrise. You, know, you get to really appreciate a cup of tea. You get to really take time for a breath. Uh, it's extraordinary. This comes from renunciation. Ultimately, 
in our um, deepest experiences of anatta, when there's no I or no you, when there's no duality, there's no greed, hatred, or delusion. And these moments feel so total and so complete because we've let go of fear, we've let go of desire, we've let go of anger. In these moments, um, we're truly open and we can receive the totality of life, of this universe, of the truth, whatever you want to call it. In these moments, usually we're filled with gratitude. After the deepest moments of my practice, I usually tears and tears flow of gratitude for the truth itself, for the teachings, for the practice. It's so rare in this earth that we get to feel this to develop understanding, to know the gratitude. The gratitude to taste being free from greed, hatred, and delusion. And that, that, to taste that freedom. And even though it might feel like a long journey to full enlightenment, <laughs> um, you're on your way. And the freedom tastes wonderful. my very favorite um, I don't know what to call it it's a chant it's <coughs> the Navajo Nightway chant and it, there's many parts to it this one is an interesting translation I like it a lot the mountain chant is meant to return us to a relationship of harmony within ourselves and all beings and with the universe. This um, gratitude that we can experience by returning to this harmony uh, restores the harmony. No matter how difficult life is, we can be restored to harmony. I've read part of it before, but this is um, a bigger chunk. House made of dawn, house made of evening light, house made of the dark cloud, house made of male rain, house made of dark mist, house made of female rain, house made of pollen, house made of grasshoppers. Dark cloud is at the door. The trail out of it is dark cloud. The zigzag lightning stands high upon it. An offering I make. Restore my feet for me. Restore my legs for me. Restore my body for me. Restore my mind for me. Restore my voice for me. This very day take out your spell for me. Happily I recover. Happily my interior becomes cool. Happily I go forth. My interior feeling cool, may I walk. No longer sore, may I walk. Impervious to pain, may I walk. With lively feelings, may I walk. As it used to be long ago, may I walk. Happily may I walk, happily with abundant dark clouds may I walk, happily with abundant showers may I walk, happily with abundant plants may I walk, happily on a trail of pollen 
may I walk. Happily may I walk. Because of being as it used to be long ago, may I walk. May it be beautiful before me. May it be beautiful behind me. May it be beautiful below me. May it be beautiful above me. May it be beautiful all around me. In beauty it is finished. In beauty it is finished. Let's sit for a few minutes. There's something I wanted to mention. Um, this point in the retreat, Thanksgiving, often marks a certain place for everyone, especially if you've been here the whole time. Uh, to keep in mind, it is a marathon. Usually I call this last part Heartbreak Hill. <laughs> There's a marathon in Boston where you know it's 26 miles, and the last part of it is this big hill. It's flat the whole way. Then the last part is this big hill, and they call it Heartbreak Hill. We're at Heartbreak Hill. Uh, And to keep in mind that it takes a lot of energy to do this. It's hard work. Uh, Respect, respect, and appreciate the power of this. uh, And really try to make it. You can do it. Sometimes I don't think I can make it, and I'm just teaching it. You know, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of um, uh, endurance. Keep the silence, please. It's the whole foundation for the practice, and it's not fair to others to break it. It breaks the endurance the stamina. If there's tears, may they turn into butterflies, and happily may you walk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.